The title of today's message is The Facts of Life Concerning Sin Denial, Part 7. It was given during the morning service on October 30, 2022 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois by Pastor John Stevens. For the sake of those on listening to the recording, last Sunday of the month I returned to Titus chapter 2, a verse-by-verse, phrase-by-phrase uh, series based on the evidences of true conversion or also known as the marks of godliness or also known as how do I know if I love Christ. In Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 15, let's read the text. You quietly in your copy of the text of scripture and me out loud, Titus 2 verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That's the blanket issue of salvation to all humanity. And then in verse 12, Paul focuses in on us as believers and what a true godly believer looks like. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is a series, as I have mentioned now repeatedly, in my prayer, before the prayer, and at the beginning of the recording here for the sermon this morning, that is dealing with the essentials of true conversion, How do we know that we're saved? With the essentials of godly living, how do we know whether we're godly? And so what we're doing is we're examining, especially in verse 12, issues surrounding our attitude as believers towards sin. Now let's start in the introduction of this sermon that's entitled The Facts of Life About Sin Denial. And let's start with the introduction that I've posed a question to us this morning. And the question is very simple. Don't answer it out loud. This is for you to answer in your own mind. Does salvation change every convert, every single convert? Well, from my study of evangelicalism and fundamentalism in the U.S. um, over the years, the answer I have overwhelmingly heard and have heard for many years among professed believers, the answer to that question would be no. Salvation does not necessarily change a person for the better. That is the stand overwhelmingly that I have experienced personally or in writing or listening to sermons from evangelical leaders and Christians and fundamental leaders and Christians. Now the answer I used to hear to that question that's in your introduction years ago was, well, I know, John, that you believe every convert Uh, changes, but uh, I don't agree with that. That's been the answer I've received overwhelmingly by many in the church here and also by those outside this church. Now, I read and hear a different answer, which is quite disturbing to me. For years it was, I don't agree with that, that salvation changes you. Now I hear something different or read about much difference in this issue. When this question is posed by me to professed believers, 
in the last few years or through uh, various aspects of Christian publications, the answer comes back not that I don't agree with this. The answer comes back with, what on earth are you talking about? So it has gone in evangelicalism today from, I don't agree that salvation transforms you to, I don't even know what you're talking about, from denial to massive ignorance. Christians don't understand what this means. In the introduction on the blank lines, most professed Christians have no idea what this phrase means. Write it down. Transformational salvation. They don't even know what that means. Have no idea what it means. They've never heard of the biblical doctrine of transformational salvation. Don't even know what it is. They can't even disagree with it because they're ignorant. As you write down those two words, transformational salvation, ask yourself a very simple question. Do you know what that means? Now, I was talking recently to an unbeliever who doesn't attend this church. And this person is a vile and wicked human being. If I told you what this person was into, you would agree with me. Well, who, what, what unbelievers are, right? But some are worse than others, right? There are degrees of depravity. And I know this person, and this person knows me. This individual had major surgery over a month ago. Surgery was successful. And then this person had a severe accident, damaging the surgery area. It looked like everything this person had gone through to fix this part of her body had become undone. I felt very bad for this person. This person waited a few weeks. It just got worse because of the accident. Forcing the person to go back to the surgeon. It looked like everything had to be redone. Major surgery. Because of an accident. I saw the person a few days after the person had seen the surgeon. I said, how did it go? First words out of the person's mouth were this. God is so good. Everything is okay with the surgery area. Well, God is good. You see, this person is a vile unbeliever who sees God as a celestial fixer and has no concept of being born again means you're transformed. This person is confident that they are saved. This person believes that they are born again. This person, at times, remotely, goes to a supposed Bible-believing church. Wicked as the day is long. Never reads the Bible. No change. Mocks God. Laughs at Christianity. But when there's good news from the surgeon, 
God is so good. That, as an unbeliever, is what has invaded Bible-believing Christianity. God is so good, but I can live any way I want. See? Church today, folks, has many leaders in our Bible-believing churches and missions and schools who've rejected the concept of what you just wrote down under the introduction. The true salvation spiritually transforms you. If you don't know what transformational conversion or salvation, it is this, that true salvation spiritually changes you for the better. And true salvation does that for every single convert. In your note sheet next, number one, is transformational salvation a new doctrine? The answer would be hardly. It's not new. It's in your Bible. Let's go away from Titus 2, which will bring up more issues of transformation when we get to it. But let's go to Matthew 7, passages that I've read to you and taught you many times before. These are linchpin passages that I return to repeatedly. Not because I have Alzheimer's, but because they are so essential to our understanding of transformational salvation. Matthew 7. In a passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that I taught to you extensively, You'll see in verse 20 that Jesus Christ says, you will know them by their profession, if they're converted, in verse 20, by their profession, by their what? Fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So there's going to be a bunch of people that say, Lord, Lord, claim to be believers, like this person I just described to you. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That shows that when you are saved, there is transformation. And this is a major one that he lists right here that we'll come back to. A hunger to do the will of God. Then there's Ephesians 2. I turn over there. You know this one as well. This is nothing new. This is not lightning rod truth that blows you away because you've never heard of it before. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8, you know that one, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. You're saved by a gift, you're saved by faith alone. But notice, not as a result of works, you can't get saved by works, so you're saved positively in verse 8 by faith, prohibitively you are not saved by works, otherwise we would boast. But look what verse 10 says, as you know, for we as workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that's salvation, for good works. We is every believer gets transformed so that we would walk in them, the good works. Transformational salvation is plain in the Bible. Then to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. I just cherry-picked three verses out of so many that teaches this to us in the Throughout the, the, the Bible, Old and New Testament. 2 Timothy 3, last days, last days in verse 1 refers to the period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. It includes the church age, and as we know from Hebrews 1, as well as 1 Timothy 4, as you get towards the end of the last days, things get worse, and the description of things getting worse is listed here, and this is not a list of societal evil. This is not a list 
of societal evils. This is a list of the way professed believers will be in Bible-believing churches. How do we know? Verse 5, holding to a what? Form of godliness. That's not in a pagan society. And Paul repeatedly says you have to go into the world and preach the gospel. You have to be a light in a dark world. But he says here in verse 5, although they've denied its power, that we're to separate from such men. You can't separate from unbelievers out there. They're our mission field. How do you avoid or separate from such people? In the church. Notice they hold to a form of godliness, although they deny its power. So what he is telling us there, the true conversion is supposed to produce godliness through divine power, and in the last days, what will happen is they will deny the power of God and have a form. Form is a very important word, morphosis. It means an outline, a sketch, a trace, a pretending. That's what form means. And in their hearts, though they're outwardly hold to a form of godliness, inwardly they deny. Our Nehemiah in verse 5 to refuse. They disown the power of God. There's no power to transform. So, number one in your note sheet is transformational salvation, a new doctrine? Hardly. You see it's in your Bible. Not that it has any authority equal to the scriptures, but take your hymnal. We're going to sing right now. Because I don't have anything else to say. I didn't finish the rest of my sermon. Turn to 203. Just chose the random number. Just came to my head. That's how Jesus works. And let's read, not sing, verse 3. Hymnal 203, written by Charles Wesley. And can it be verse 3? Let's just read it, you quietly, while I out loud. 203, verse 3. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast found in sin and nature's night. That's description of an unbeliever, right? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. That's illumination of conversion. My chains fell off. My heart was free. That's conversion. Here's the result. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Charles Wesley knew that any Bible, what any Bible-believing theologian knew back then and is known down through the history of the church. That last line is transformational salvation right there. Followed Christ. That's the result. Yes. What? Found the... It says found? It says followed, I thought. That's all right. You found that it didn't say followed. Scared me. I had some palpitations there. Thought I typed it wrong. It could have been me. That's for sure. So, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's transformation. So, again, under number one, justification always leads to sanctification. That's what we see in Titus 2. Okay? Salvation offered to all people, verse 11 of Titus 2, leading to sanctification, verse 12. Justification always leads to sanctification under number one. 
So if we've been truly saved in Christ, then the Spirit sets us apart for holiness. And we're supposed to examine this as believers. Look at 2 Corinthians 13. Another linchpin passage that I refer to many times. I remember exactly the last time I referred to this. It was 2020 at 11.05 a.m. in the sermon. During No, I, I don't know the last time I referred to it, but I do it many times. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He's confronting the corrupted Corinthian believers over and over again in chapters 1 through 13 of 2 Corinthians. And notice in verse 15, he gives an imperative command, peirazzo. This is no option. Test yourselves. Okay? Verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He gives them the command, test yourselves. Yourselves is plural, referring to every single believer. Okay? It's not tempt, even though the word peirazzo in noun and verb form can either mean tempt or test. I think we can at least rest interpretively on this issue, that Paul is not commanding the believers to go get tempted by sin. Do you agree? He wants us all to go out and have a party of his sin. So peirazzo is correctly translated as test. To see if you are in the faith. The faith. You need to test yourselves. That's every believer. How? It says how you do it. You examine yourselves. Dakimazo. You look inwardly, and it's an imperative command, and you judge yourself continuously in your mind to see if you are in the faith. This is somewhat of a frustrating verse because it's frustrating because we're sinners, not because it's insufficient. But if you look at verse 5, your natural inclination like mine would be to do this. All right, I want to make sure I'm in the faith. I need to examine myself. I need to look for evidences, right? So now the rest of the verse, I'm going to find out how to do that, right? Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? No, that's not telling me how to examine. Hmm. That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Oh, I don't want to fail the test. What's the test? I'm going to give you a test. You need to examine. Where are the questions? Where are the evidences? Don't see it at the end of verse 5. Hmm. Come on, Paul, give me the test. I want to know what it is. Verse 6. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. That's a parenthetical statement because they're accusing him of being a false apostle. So he's really using some sarcasm there because they were questioning his credentials completely. So he says, I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. That's parenthetical. In other words, that's kind of like stuck in. Okay, we're going to take a test, but uh, oh, let's think about this first. Verse 6. Now we're going to take a test. Oh, i got to think about something else. Verse 7. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. In other words, fail the test. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right. Pass the test. Even though we may appear unapproved. Obviously they did for some reason to the Corinthians because they were wicked. So you say, oh my goodness, he completely forgot to give us how to examine ourselves. Well, I've got news for you. The Holy Spirit doesn't forget. Okay. Paul just waited to verse 8. Four, this is a result clause that goes all the way back to the commands grammatically of test and examine yourself in verse 5. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. This is a profound, major, self-examining test. Are you 
for the truth. Oh, no, 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 no. No, the Bible doesn't say you just believe the Bible is the word of God and that you love the Bible, so to speak, and you profess that. It's is your life directed towards and a production of scriptural truth. So this was Paul's foundational question he posed to the rebellious Corinthian church. It's a question that is not even being asked because Christians today, so to speak, don't even know whether they are to be transformed or not. They've never even heard of it. MacArthur, in his book, Freedom from Sin, says this, the believer is a different person, a new person. A Christian is a brand new creation in Christ. He's become something he never was before. Salvation is not addition, but transformation. Do you know what he means by that? Salvation wasn't you just getting heaven. That's an addition. You had hell, now you get heaven. That's what most Christians think. Just, that's what that person who had surgery and then fell and damaged the surgery area and God is good, it was restored. It's just, it's just he's sending me to heaven but I can do whatever I want and he's my celestial Santa Claus who fixed my broken body. That's what most Christians think. It's just an addition. I'm going to heaven, now I can live any way I want. He goes on. Becoming a Christian is not simply receiving something new, it is becoming someone new. The believer has died to sin because sin is no longer the abiding power in his life. Salvation is more than something God says. It is something he affects in the life of a believer. And that new life has affected a fundamental change in the relationship a man has with sin. End quote. Mac is right. Fundamental change occurs. First, in the area of how one views one's own sin. Go back to Titus 2. Fundamental change occurs in how one views one's own sin as a believer and what does verse 12 tell us right up front instructing us to what in Titus 2.12 to deny continuously ungodliness the testimony of scripture is unified the true believer First and fundamentally, just as he did a conversion, realized what a sinner he was, as a true believer, first and fundamentally, he hates his own sin and desires to renounce it. That's what we read in Psalm 51 in our responsive reading. That first paragraph you read, I told you to go back to the top. And that's what David said right there. He realized sin was always before him. So, Fundamental denial or repentance of sin. But there's more to true salvation, transformation, than just a hatred and repentance of sin. We'll come back to that one. But there are other evidences. We need more than just that. We saw one certainly at the beginning of our responsive reading with David in Psalm 51. We saw another one at the end of that responsive reading. We've seen a third one in regards to what David just said about testing ourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 8. So how do we really know correctly? How do we assess ourselves correctly? To see if there's real fundamental change in our lives so that we may know whether we're truly saved or not. What exactly does that transformation look like? That is the key issue in this sermon today and in this series. That's what verses 12 to 15 is all about. Look for these transformational issues. That's what we're doing every last Sunday of the month. How do you know you're saved? 
You have to understand both the apostate in the New Testament and Jude who creeps in unnoticed, therefore has a testimony of conversion, and the true believer, they both give testimony and profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Both the apostate in the church and the true believer. If both the apostate and the true believer give an accurate repentance, lordship, profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and the apostate's going to hell because it's fake, and the true believer profession is going to heaven because it's real, then profession is irrelevant for determining whether I'm saved or not. It is how we get saved, it is not how we test the salvation. Look at James chapter 2. Every time I run into an ignorant believer who I confront, you're living a life and a lifestyle that is counter to what it means to be a true believer. They'll always backstop themselves up against the foundational belief that they have. Well, I know that I'm saved. How do you know that you're saved? Because I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I know I'm saved. And I'll say to them something like this, congratulations, you and demons are in the same room. And they will have no idea what I'm talking about. What do you mean I'm in the same room with demons? Well, you have believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, and so do demons. They don't have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, look at James chapter 2, verse 19. It says here, here that they do. You believe that God is one, you do well. James 2, 19. The demons also believe. Pistuo, believe, twice used for the professed believer and for the demon. It's one of the words for saving faith. That word believe, used twice for you and for demons. Did you know that? That you, if you made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, if you pistuoed and received Jesus as Lord and Savior, they have that same faith, so to speak, but a fake faith. You see that? Same profession. Same word in verse 19. And then they actually add one to it. Priso, shudder. If you're in trembling toward the Lord Jesus Christ, I know a lot of professed believers that don't have that. Okay, so. What? You're telling me, John, that I have faith in Jesus and they do too? Yep. They know exactly who Jesus Christ is. They know he's Lord and Savior. And they know that by Faith, that's that word believe. That's the word for faith. You can't deny the authority of Scripture in verse 19. They have faith. It's just not saving faith. Again, we come back to this profound issue that the church today, you ask believers, does Jesus Christ transform you? What are you talking about? I know he's my Savior. I received him. That's not what I asked. I said, how do you know you're saved? Didn't say, how did you get saved? Never heard that, John. That's because churches don't teach it. Why don't they teach it? Because the church is captured by heresy and apostasy in these last days. But imagine this. A host of professed believers, countless ones in the world today, who are writing everything on a profession that is just like demons. And in Jew, just like apostates. And they have no concern as to whether they really made a true profession of faith. And since both the apostate, the demon, and the true believer have faith in Jesus, you can't tell that you're saved at all, zero, by examining whether you said the right prayer or not. You don't test yourself through profession. 
you test yourself through transformation. Transformation doesn't save. It shows you whether you're safe. If you are riding your conversion on that time you prayed the prayer, you are in such dangerous, potentially hell-bound condition. So how can I tell I'm saved? That's the series. Now, if you're saying here, forget it, John. You know, I'm fine. You're, 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 you're ragging on an issue you do over and over in your sermons. I don't care about those things because I know I'm saved. If that's your attitude, you're an unbeliever. Because you are in direct defiance of the two commands of the Apostle Paul to every believer, regardless of how long you've been saved. He wasn't talking to new converts. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he commanded us to test and to examine continuously every believer over and over again. To defy that is to say that you are a fake believer. This is of such concern to the Holy Spirit that look at 1 John Chapter 5, this is such a concern because he's seeing all our hearts. And he sees that way more have made profession than are going to heaven. And so the Spirit of God wrote through the Apostle John when he was an old man, 1 John, and the entire epistle is simply testing to see if we are true believers. That's all it is. It is not an analysis of the rebel believer versus the godly believer. This is an epistle that is an analysis of a true believer versus a fake believer. That's all it is, 1 John. Nothing about backsliding is even mentioned in this epistle other than two verses in 1 John 4. So that is way down the list of what the Holy Spirit and John is doing. And you can see the purpose of this book in 1 John 5, verse 13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God... There it is. He's writing to those who have faith in the name of the Son of God so that, here's the reason, you may know, have assurance, that you have eternal life. He didn't write to backsliders. He wrote to everyone that made a profession. An entire epistle written to this concept. And yet today in churches, Christians have no clue. They didn't even know. Now let's examine this a little closer then in number two in your note sheet. So if you've made a profession and this is scaring the living daylights out of you because you don't know how to examine yourself or you're not sure what to do, then you should be scared to death. So let's examine exactly how to do this properly, biblically. Number two, the bottom line answer to this, to the, the bottom line answer to the question in your note sheet um, how can I examine myself? How do I know that I'm saved? Is that true salvation transformation requires this? This is foundational. This is eternally salvation truth. Are you ready for it? Write it in the blank line. It requires divine intervention. Salvation transformation requires divine intervention. Nothing more Nothing less. You and I, as professed believers, cannot transform ourselves. Salvation transformation cannot take place merely through the power of our own wills and desires. 
So professed believers must look for miraculous evidences of transformation that only the Holy Spirit could produce in them. However, letter A, and this is frightening, the common qualities most believers use to tell themselves they are saved are ones that do not require the Holy Spirit and thus do no good in assessing one's true conversion. And number one is the first one I hear, I hear all the time down through the years. I stopped a bad habit after salvation. So I know I'm saved. That's irrelevant. That's not divine intervention. So what do you mean by bad habits? Well, you could write these down. I've had Christians tell me that I know I'm saved because I stopped smoking. I stopped drinking. I stopped drugs. I stopped fornicating. I stopped gambling. I stopped swearing. You give the, la- the list. I could point out to you name and address of rank pagan unbelievers that I have known who could do and have done all of those without the Holy Spirit. You don't need a Holy Spirit to do any of those. Stop a bad habit. All right, well, all right. Well, I won't use that one, but uh, I believe in positive, not negative. So number two, I know I'm saved because I see some good outward things after salvation that have come into my life that weren't there before. Like, I never went to church. Now I go to church, so I know I'm saved. I never witnessed of Jesus, now I witness, so I know I'm saved. I never prayed, now I pray. Never read my Bible, now I read my Bible. Never served in a church, now I serve. Going to church, witnessing, praying, reading my Bible, serving in a church. Those are things that any unbeliever can do without the Holy Spirit. Right? I was watching this pagan that I was telling you about. Swaying, Christian music, lips moving, praying. Praying to a God who is not there for that person. Unbelievers can pray without the Holy Spirit, right? Right? You believe that? Unbelievers can serve in a church. Other believers can tell other people about Christ. I know unbelievers, I know one right now I can name by name who never darkens the door of a church and is an absolute unbeliever and reads his Bible almost every day. You can do that and not be saved, right? But this is what Christians do. Now, not doing those things, willfully after conversion, not doing any of those things, not witnessing, not going to church, not praying, not doing those would mean you're lost. You understand that. If you got saved and you never witnessed, never prayed, never went to church, never served, never read your Bible. Not doing those things means you're lost, but doing them doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. Do you understand that? Not doing something speaks to lack of conversion. Doing it doesn't necessarily mean you are. In other words, when you get converted, the Lord changes behavior, but unbelievers can mimic that behavior. So let's wipe out everything as evidence of conversion. Bad habits out of your life? Talk nice. Don't swear. Come to church. Come to a prayer meeting. Pray out loud. Pray privately. Read your Bible every day. Tell others about Jesus. 
or tracks on doors for the church here. Erase all of that as any proof that we're saved. Letter B. And you understand why, because you, you don't need the Holy Spirit to do any of those things, really. Do you really think you need the Holy Spirit to come to church? Think you really need the Holy Spirit to stop swearing? Give up smoking? That same person that I've told you about stopped smoking for four months. Must be saved. Let it be. Therefore, in order to judge oneself if one has truly been saved, one must look for evidence of spiritual change in one's life that only the indwelling Holy Spirit could produce. Now, this requires more accurate and more difficult self-examination. I need to find stuff that there is no way I could ever, with my human willpower, do, think, or believe to show that I'm saved. Because a dead person spiritually pretending to be a true believer cannot produce evidential change that requires the Holy Spirit because a fake believer has no indwelling spirit. We have to find a list scripturally that shows this is what transformation is that no human without the Holy Spirit could ever have. That's the list we need. That's the list in Titus 2, 11 to 15 that we'll eventually get back to again. One of the lists. MacArthur again. Quote, What are people to look for when they examine themselves? What are the marks of genuine saving faith? Popular answers in the church might include praying a prayer, walking an aisle, having an emotional experience, being baptized, attending church, leading an outwardly moral life, feeling conviction of sin, or knowing facts about Jesus. None of these, however, are authentic marks of saving faith. People can have knowledge of spiritual things, believe in the truth of the Bible, fear God's judgment, feel guilt over sin, be outwardly religious, and affirm the superiority of Jesus Christ, yet die in their sins. End quote. Wow. Maybe we shouldn't be so sure we're saved after all. So number three, if one desires to self-examine to see if one is truly in the faith, where should one look first then? And I'm giving you, outside of Titus 2, which is another list, four primary marks of true salvation that only the Spirit can produce. Four true marks of salvation that only the Spirit can produce. You and I had better fixate on these to the exclusion of all that other stuff. Okay? Too negative? I love negativity. So I put them first. Then too positive. Number one, negatively look for a hunger to repent. First one, that David in Psalm 51 talked about. How sinful he is. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. A hunger to repent. Where's that? Titus 2. I mean, first, 2 Timothy 2, excuse me. 2 Timothy 2. Go back there. 
Verse 25, with gentleness, 225, 2 Timothy 225, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant, see that word grant in verse 25? That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't repent in your own human willpower. You can't. Grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge, experiential knowledge of the truth. That's going to be another one. If you truly are saved, you have been given true repentance that leads you to now have an understanding and a growing knowledge and experience with truth. That's what Paul just said in 2 Corinthians 13.8. I'm only for the truth. Same thing here in verse 25. Leading towards knowledge is experiential knowledge in the Greek. This is not just an intellectual then. I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I'm a sinner. So I'm saved, right? No, this is hunger. If there's no spirit, there's no hatred of sin, there's no repentance of sin. This includes a hatred of evil in myself, hatred of evil in the world, in the church, including heresy. You see how the church today is filled with believers who don't give a lick about truth. They're not repentant, because if you notice in verse 25, repentance leads to a proper experiential knowledge of the truth. If there's no conversion, then heresy abounds. Why does heresy and apostasy abound in the church today? Because it's filled with unbelievers who aren't repenting. Do you see the cause and effect in verse 25? True repentance from the gift of the Holy Spirit leads to a proper experiential knowledge of the truth. We don't see that today. Under this negativity one, Mark it well. This is an overwhelming sense of your sinfulness as a believer. Go back to that Psalm 51 if you did not get it when we read it. Overwhelming sense of your constant overwhelming sinfulness as a believer. This concerns me greatly. I could name on less than five fingers people in this beloved church of ours right here that I hear verbalizing out loud in any context how overwhelmingly sinful they are in their great struggle with sin in conversation or in prayer. How can we, as believers professed, be overwhelmingly silent about the greatest transformational evidence that God ever gave a wicked human being that I'm overwhelmed now as a darkened unbeliever. Now I am an enlightened believer and so overwhelmed with my sinfulness that offends the holy God. But we're silent towards that one. Heavens, we don't want other people to know that one. We don't want other believers in this church to know that we're terrible sinners. Our silence is a vote that we are not repentant. That is so scary. First base on transformation is dead silently not talked about in our church. Wow. Negatively, number two, look for a hunger to deny self's wishes. Look for a hunger to deny self's wishes. Matthew 16, 24. Al wasn't offended by the sermon, by the way. He has to get to work. Just make sure everybody knows that. He has to leave, and I'm running over, so he has to leave right at a quarter to. John, uh, Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, that's a statement of evidential transformational conversion, verse 24. That's what Wesley just wrote, right? 
and followed him. Remember that? Matthew 16, 24. You see that in Matthew 16, 24? If anyone wishes to come after me, that's following him. That's what Charles Wesley wrote about. Matthew 16, 24. And this is hunger to deny self's wishes. That's negative number two. Look for hunger to deny self's wishes. Notice, he must renounce himself. If you're converted, these are evidences. The coming after me is the conversion. The evidences of it are the rest of the verse. Denies himself and takes up the cross, number two, and follows me, number three. So he's saying, if you are truly a follower of me, if you're truly converted, you will deny yourself. What does that mean to renounce yourself? That means one verb. This is the key, absolute key. This is an imperative command. A total disowning of your own will. This is an evidence of conversion. It's no longer what I want with my life as a believer. It's what I want as God. He's Lord. He's master. I'm slave. He's master. I don't care what it is. I will follow him. I will do his will. I will not compromise you, Lord. I will not compromise your word. I will renounce my own desires and wishes. This is true conversion. To live for oneself after conversion is false conversion. Evidences that I do not have this transformational evidence in my life. What would be evidences? An unwillingness to do the will of God, that's going to come next. You could uh, write that under negatively, denying self's wishes. Refusing to sacrifice for Christ, refusing to worship for Christ in a, in a righteous and holy way. Refusal to go where God wants you to go, to do what he wants you to do. Just an absolute refusal. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to do it my way. It's a Frank Sinatra evidence that shows that I really don't have this conversion evidence in my life. Number three, positively on the backside. Look for a hunger to do the will of God. We just saw that in Matthew 7. A hunger to do the will of God found in God's word. You can't find God's word apart from, you can't find God's will apart from God's word. Look for a hunger to do God's will. See, these are hunger issues. Are you noticing all of them are hunger issues? An overwhelming desire and hunger to repent. An overwhelming desire to renounce my own self as Lord, as a believer. A hunger, an obsession to find God's will for my life. These hunger issues are Holy Spirit transformation. The essential character quality of a true convert that shows that I'm saved is a massive unending hunger for these righteous virtues. Repentance, denial of self, doing the will of God. This includes faith in Christ that grows, as 2 Corinthians 13.8 says that we saw when we were back there. And that growing faith tells us that a knowledge of truth to obey grows. A knowledge of truth to obey grows. This includes faith in Christ that grows, as 2 Corinthians 13.8 told us, that a knowledge of truth to obey then grows. A knowledge of truth to obey grows. A hunger to do the will of God. You can't do the will of God apart from the word of God. You can't do the will of God apart from growing faith. So it's growing faith, growing knowledge of the word. This is saturation of truth in one's life. Write that under positively there, number three. This is massive saturation of truth. Show me an ignorant Bible believer of the scriptures. I'll show you someone who has no clue what the will of God is. And they should have no assurance of salvation. None. Constant, continuous, long-term ignorance of the scriptures. I don't know what it says. I don't what it means. Says to God, I don't want your will since it's only found in the Bible. 
Only the Spirit can produce this virtue. This is the tell for Christian leadership to see individuals in our churches, and ours included, the massive tell, the evidence that there is something very wrong when we have believers who can't even find books in the Bible, very little spend time in the Bible, can hardly read the Bible, don't know the Bible, don't understand the Bible. How could anyone ever think that they're doing the will of God in that condition? If we're going to submit to the divine authority of Christ in our lives, we submit to him through the word. Case closed. The written word is the only word. Case closed. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Grace to you and peace. Verse 2. 2 Peter 1, 2, be multiplied to you. That's how we grow. But grace, peace, we were learning that in 1 Timothy. Grow, multiplied, grows. 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you through, in, towards the knowledge of God when you're growing in grace and peace. When you're truly saved, he's saying you grow in the knowledge of God. Do you see that in verse 2? So plain. You're ignorant of the Bible? Don't desire the Bible? Aren't in the Bible? Have a little legalistic quiet time? Do your daily bread set aside? That's it. I'm saved. I know I am. No, you are not. You don't have this hunger, then grace isn't working. And we end up seeing in verse 3 that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through what? The true knowledge of him. Where's the true knowledge of God? Only in the word of God. Matthew 19. This is what Paul and Titus in this series is teaching us. We should be wanting to be instructed more. That's the first thing he says, instructing us to deny ungodliness. It's all about instruction, Bible instruction, the saturation of the word of God. The tell that people are professing and not saved, the massive tell to we who are Christian leaders is individuals who have been saved for years, so to speak, but don't know anything about the Bible. They're unbelievers. That's what they are. That's what the rich young ruler was. You know the story. He knew that Jesus was a teacher in Matthew 19, verse 16. What must I do to obtain eternal life? He was confused about how to be saved. And so Jesus confronts him on that which is lacking in his life. Gives a list of the outward things that any unbeliever can do in verse 18. You should not commit murder. You should not commit adultery. Any unbeliever can do these. And so the man is very self-righteous in verse 20. All these things I've kept. What am I still lacking? So Jesus confronts him in verse 21 on the issue of absolute supreme submission to my will. That's verse 21. If you wish to be complete, perfect, saved, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Selling my possessions saves me? That was his idol. So Jesus is intersecting two major evidences of conversion. The hunger to repent that you wrote down of all idolatry and sin, and that's what he needed to do, as evidenced by selling his possessions, because he worshipped them. And following me is submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's how you get saved. 
You renounce your idolatrous sins and you repent of them and then you turn and ask Jesus to be Lord and you tell him that you desire him to be Savior and Lord of your life. And then after conversion, you continue to renounce sin and you continue to follow and hunger for the will of God. And we do that through the word of God. And when we don't hunger for the word of God and we are not desiring his will for our life, we're not saved. Lastly, positively, Not exhaustively is this list, but these are major ones. Look for a growing internal holiness of the mind and will. Not holy words, not holy attendance. Internal holiness of the mind and will. Nobody can produce that in the mind. Only the Holy Spirit. Internal holiness of the mind and the will. Not outward morality, that comes, but inward morality first. Inward righteousness first. It's inside out, that's how sanctification works. Internal holiness manifested by the internal Holy Spirit then transforms the outward behavior. But you have to find it here or the outward behavior is pure legalism. Go back to Titus. This is exactly what we're learning in this series. In Titus 2. The word of God is to instruct us. To, you can't be holy unless you first deny, verse 12, Titus 2.12, deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That, that is foundational. You must renounce ungodliness and worldly desires. And then you put on the righteous counterpart. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16, talking about apostates in the church at Crete. At Crete. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God. See, they're, they're Bible believers. They profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him. Now, what deeds? Bad boys and girls? They don't go to church? No. He talks about state of being in verse 16. Being. This is who they are inside. Detestable. Disobedient in the heart. This is what gets covered up when we come to church. Okay? We come in professing to know God. Do our thing here. But in our minds... Being this way, detestable and disobedient and worthless. Adakimas. Not standing the test. There it is. The exact opposite of that word test we just saw in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Worthless. Failing the test for any good deed. The mind that is not transformed. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. These are your tests. These are the things that only the Spirit of God can produce in a human heart. Kind of a far more profound, miraculous list than, hey, I know I'm saved. I stopped drinking tequila or beer. No. First Peter 1.15. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Oh, so I'm supposed to behave holy. That's right. But an interesting thing about First Peter 1.15. You will never be holy in all your behavior unless you look at what came before it. Verse 13, you must gird or prepare your minds for action. Keep sober internally. Have hope. Verse 14, be obedient by not lusting. Verse 14, that's in the mind. And then and only then does your behavior become holy in verse 15. We want to talk about nice words and actions around church. We're not to do that until we first do verses 13 and 14. This transformation of holiness occurs in the mind in verse 13, and it's a renunciation continuously of lusting in verse 14. These are evidences of true conversion. 
You want to know what real holiness looks like, you should know the three passages in the New Testament that speak to spiritual fruit. Most people only know one of them. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The New Testament has given us three, that's six, three major passages in spiritual fruit that are called the fruit of the Spirit. Write that down under positively last there. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That's internal holiness. It's character transformation that no one can see. And that's what the Apostle John confronted the Israelites on in John chapter 10, that if you're abiding in Jesus Christ, you are manifesting fruit. This is what Paul told the rebellious Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 2.9 when he said, you are failing this test of righteousness on the first fruit, which is love. And it's not self-love. It's love for Christ and love for others. In 1 Corinthians 2.9 he says, the evidence is love. Love is the first of the fruit. Loving others, unconditionally loving others in the church, serving others out of love, loving Jesus Christ, living a holy life because we love him. These are miraculous. These can't be worked up by the power of the human will. And yet Christians are literally hell-bent telling themselves they're saved because I made profession and I go to church and I read my Bible. Do you know how shocked it is for such an unbeliever to die in supposed peace and thinking they're going to be in eternal heaven and wake up in eternal darkness, falling forever in tortured agony and flames, screaming for all of eternity, but I know that I'm saved. Why am I here? I made the profession. Hell is filled with professed born-again Christians. I don't preach these things because I hate you. I preach them because I love you. And I don't want you there. How blind we were, dear Lord. No hope. Darkened in our understanding, as Ephesians 4 tells us. And only you could pierce the darkness. And when you do, you transform. You transform miraculously every single time. And when there's no evidence, your word is plain. We're worthless and hellbound. You're not impressed, dear Lord, by our defenses. We like to defend ourselves before you. You know, Lord Jesus, I'm saved. He sees the heart. We don't defend ourselves before you, Lord. We can't defend ourselves before you. We either stand in grace or we don't. We're either saved or we're not. We either manifest the miracles of divine intervention or we do not. We're either transformed or we're not saved. 
We hunger for repentance. We hunger for your will. We hunger for holiness. And we hunger to hate ourselves. And love only you. And no human will ever produce those virtues in their own power. Because we are so wicked. If we see those undying hungers, yet still in the context of failing miserably with sin. And oh, how we love our sin. And then we hate it. And we ask forgiveness. That's what shows us we're converts. No fake loves their sin, Lord, and then repents. They cover it up. And they lie to other people to make themselves look good. We who are saved here this morning stand in Psalm 51. Our sin is ever before us, O wretched people that we are. We stand in Romans 7 with Paul, who will deliver us from this body of sin and death. Only you, Jesus. Only the cross. Only grace. Only mercy. May we never be those who have a form of godliness yet deny its power. We hunger, we beg, we pray, we plead that if we have none of these hungers, that you will then truly save us for our previous confessions and professions were false. Truly enter in, Holy Spirit, as we bow our knees to your Lordship, as we curse the sinning day we were born in our sin, and plead for your mercy. And bow before the cross and glory in the power of the resurrection and see you take a wretched sinner and change us inside out. For your glory and for your honor in Jesus' name, amen.